I'm going to say something that I have no idea what your guys' reaction is going to be to. Really, I, I don't have my finger on the pulse of the Zeno franchise's fan base. Although apparently a lot of them also happen to be people who watch my stuff since by this point in time I've been asked to talk about Xenosaga 1, 2, and 3, Xenoblade Chronicles, Xenoblade Chronicles X, and now Xenoblade Chronicles 2. So I have a feeling you guys like this franchise. Call me weird. But here it is, guys. Super controversial moment. This might be the first Zeno game I've actually really enjoyed. See, I'm not actually a huge fan of the franchise. It's not bad, don't mistake me. I'm not saying, like, ah, it's horrible, and I had to drag myself through it. No, it's more like, I don't know, it usually kind of stretches into directions I just don't usually care for. It's just not my thing. Coffee. That being said, though, this one hit a lot of right buttons. In fact, if anything, I found myself wanting to embrace it more than I actually could. Because there were plenty of points where I'm like, yeah, this is so great, and then the voice actor would just ruin the moment. <laughs> That's the first thing I want to comment on. The voice acting is just bizarre for this game. It feels like voice acting from a 2005 game, where the voice direction is just all over the place, where sometimes it's actually really good. Uh, especially in more of the quiet moments, I've noticed. Most of the voice actors, especially Rex's voice actor, do a better job of moments where they're just kind of talking and they have to express a little bit of emotion and then there's this, there's this bit of hesitance as they're talking about it. And, you know, and that's fine. And then every now and again they have to be, like, aggressive or in the moment or yelling or fighting and it's just, it's not there. And there's too many times where the tone of the line absolutely doesn't match the line or the moment of the line, which usually comes down to voice directing in my experience. So it's just weird. I do like how the AI is clearly an improvement. Going straight from Xenoblade Chronicles X to Xenoblade Chronicles 2 was like a breath of fresh air, because it feels like they took a lot of the gameplay lessons of that game, and were like, okay, 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 let's fix a few of the things. Now, the AI still has a couple of problems with, you know, enemies thornsing up, or, uh, you know, the terrain thing that I mentioned back in X, but at the very least, they tend to be a lot smarter. If anything, the way I want to parallel it is with a game that I don't know if some of you have ever heard of called Guild Wars, Guild Wars 1 specifically. Now, Guild Wars 1 had this unique thing where you had hero units. Now, you didn't have direct control of them. You could make them go to a specific area and turn them from passive to active, but otherwise you had no total control of them. There wasn't even a gambit system like I hinted at in the previous video. Instead, what you had was the ability to set them up with builds and, for lack of a better way to put it, an understanding of how the AI works. Because the AI would always prioritize certain types of actions or certain types of activities. So if you knew what the AI was doing, in other words, how it thinks, you could go ahead and set them up with a build, which in this case was the specific uh, abilities they had, in order to say, hey, I want you to do this. And thus, that's how it came to be. It was a very awesome system, in my opinion. And it worked very, very well. Which leads us to this game. Because I felt the exact same way. Setting up your other drivers with the right blades and the right arts and the right crystal cores and the right pouches and the right gear and with the proper skill unlocks and I feel like I'm still missing some steps in there it would be critical in order to make sure that they actually know what they're doing and use them properly so overall the combat was a lot more enjoyable in this one than in the previous entries in the series for me I will also say that uh, one of the things this game does that is definitively better than Xenoblade although of course it is it's a switch game versus a Wii game but Xenoblade 1 I don't remember if I commented on this on my rumination, but I remember it being a little claustrophobic. I know that sounds strange, but there were so many loading screens, and most of the areas were relatively small or contained. It always made me feel like I was just kind of, you know, kind of cloistered in. 
Whereas this game feels a lot more open and expansive and, well, gets, gets across the exact opposite idea of that. It's also worth noting they tend to be a little bit smarter, at least in my experience, with the general visual direction of the zones within this game. So if you're in an area that's closed off, it's in an area that should be closed off rather than out in the open running down towards a mountainside kind of a thing. Uh, I'd talk about the Titans now, but I want to save that more for the story thing. Uh, I do want to mention this game did actually make me laugh several times, which I think is actually the first for the Zeno series. I'm, I'm not sure off the top of my head. Not really usually a funny series. <laughs> I'm sorry. It, 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 I'm remembering a scene in specific um, where she just slaps Rex into the camera and the camera shatters and then the combats, the boss battle starts. That was just... Anyways... <clears throat> I'm trying to figure out how to explain the combat without sitting here. Like, this is a game that I would imagine people could sit down and do entire videos just explaining how the combat works. Like I mentioned earlier, so you've got your skills, which you have to put points into. You've got your blades, which is a separate equip. And then you've got your gear, and then you've got your pouches. The pouches serve as basically relics, you know, passive abilities. Uh, usually in combat. And then uh, we've got the blades, which themselves have their own skills, which they unlock, and they have their own core crystals, which can unlock their own abilities and, and arts and all sorts of other fun stuff. And, of course, the weapon types and getting the weapon ups from the specific type of blade, which uses a type of weapon, which is then relevant to Rex. And just we're not even done yet because then we get to the combo system. Now, I was advised walking into this because the game, well, as much as I praise the gameplay, it still has the padding HP problem of well, a lot of the franchise, really, but especially uh, Chronicles X. So I was advised to do a, a few specific things to break the chain combo thing. Now, I kind of like it, but I kind of don't at the same time, because it gets, after a certain point, every boss fight boiled down to the same general concept. Um, I do like the concept. I like the idea. You build up the bar simply by doing white damage, which you do automatically. You can put the game down and your enemy, your character does white damage. So this, unlike Xenoblade Chronicles X, which was a cooldown gameplay system, which I talked about, this is more of a build-spend kind of a system. White damage builds the bar, which you then spend on yellow damage. White damage being, you know, just... Whoosh, 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 whoosh. Yellow damage being abilities and skills. And it can be heals and tanks and all sorts of other stuff like that as well. It doesn't have to just be damage. Then, of course, you use those to build up your mega bar, which I actually can't remember the name of right off the top of my head, which allows you to do a big attack of a certain elemental type, which will enable to be, like, for example, let's do lightning and then fire and then I think wind was another combo one that I did fairly often. And as you do these combos, you also add these combo bubbles under the the boss's health so that each time you actually pull off a full chain attack, which you do in the upper left corner. <laughs> There's a lot to this game, okay? It's, it's Nino Kuni all over again. Um, then you actually start to just chain and chain and chain, and normally the chain is just you go one circle around, but if you manage to break the bubbles, which if you filled up the bar properly you always do, then you chain again and again and again, and then the enemy freaking dies. I do like this system, but I still feel like this isn't perfection. This would probably be a net positive circumstance for me. I love the control scheme. I really do. Everything being nice and smooth and easy on what is basically eight hotkeys on both controllers was awesome. And uh, I actually have my spare Switch controllers right here. So I can actually show you, you know, being able to just be like, you know, okay, and then I want to go this and this. Oh, behind, there's a pop-up, so I'm going to hit this button to make sure he does his attack. Okay, there we go, and then let's go over here. And this just moving around. It all was very well controlled when it came to that. It was actually fun to play, even though it did take a little bit long. 
those are the side quests. This is just my opinion. We're probably better designed in this one than X. Now, I know I didn't do side quests in X, but I did read and watch quite a few of them to try and get an opinion on them. And I actually did several side quests in this one. And for the most part, it's not like they were bad in X. It's just I feel like they had more experience with them. They knew what they were doing better. This game has a much stronger story focus than X, but the problem is a lot of that story focus is either in the background or at the ground level. Stuff that isn't really rumination taught material, you know? It's not, it's like, okay, well, the politics are interesting and the whole Mordain thing, that's fascinating and the direction they're going with how they have to take additional territory in order to support themselves. That's cool. I like that. Um, it is indicative of one of the two central themes of the work, but I ultimately just don't have much to say about it. And ultimately, the same is kind of true with the characters. Like, most of the characters didn't really sing out for me, uh, other than several of the obvious ones. You know, I, I do have to admit, I really did like... Uh, I always stumble over pronouncing this, even though they say it so many times. Popoy <laughs> and Torah, you know. Let's talk about the Cloud Sea. The very first thing I learned about this game was the Cloud Sea. And I have to admit, and I talked about this in a stream during the announcement video and during during the, the release of that. I think it was at an E3. Or maybe it was a Nintendo Direct. I don't actually remember. But I was restreaming it when it happened. And the Cloud Sea just caught my attention immediately. It was the kind of thing that made me go, that's a cool concept. And it turns out it is still a very cool concept. The idea of restructuring and repurposing information. It's basically a giant cloud of, of nanites, effectively, which are constantly breaking down and re rebuilding things on a molecular level, which is very cool. And also forms an interesting pseudo-threat when it comes to the Titans, although the Titans themselves are, of course, not particularly threatened by these things, rather supplanted by it, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. The whole idea of the Cloud Sea, though, and the threat that it poses, as well as the promises of treasure and ability that it provides, that's also interesting, because... You know, one of the first things I asked is, what's with the Cloud Sea and what's below the Cloud Sea? And both these things are answered throughout the course of this game, so at least we don't get a non-answer situation here. And really, not to parallel this, but unlike Xenoblade Chronicles X, this game really feels like it does conclusively end. In fact, this is pretty much your last chance for spoilers here, so as usual I'm just going to say spoilers. This game also conclusively ends Xenoblade Chronicles 1 since both games happen at the same time in parallel universes and more or less attached by the same overall events, thanks to Klaus. I think that was a cool way to end both games, and it actually, in many ways, made the ending of one a lot more satisfying to me, since we actually see a little bit more of the specifics of exactly what happened. This being the original reality, of this being set on Earth, or what's left of Earth at this point, and most of the stuff over in the first game being the stuff that was ripped over there and then transferred by Zanza and, you know, that form of Klaus. I also like the, the visual presentation of Klaus being half of him, but I don't want to talk about Klaus just yet. Rather, I want to talk about the Klaus cycle, which is what I was mentally thinking of it going throughout this game. The whole idea of nanites taking material and using information to craft devices and creatures, which then process more data, taking in more information to craft even more complex lives. Something about that is just really fascinating to me. The whole idea makes a, a huge amount of sense, really. Um, it's basically a more distended species-wide, or other species plural, wide uh, concept of droid effect. In other words, you start off with a simplistic intellect, which then experiences and interacts. You take all that information to make a more complex intellect, and then you may take all that information to take a more complex intellect until we finally have the sentient sapien species walking around on the planet. 
I thought that was a fascinating way of doing things because it is droid effect. It's just on a macroscopic scale rather than a microscopic scale. Because droid effect's an individual, but this is going across what is effectively a form of evolution. Uh, sort of a artificially induced evolution, but evolution nevertheless. Although even that's kind of an inaccurate statement, since evolution is specifically the... the you know, let's not get into that. Point being, it's an interesting approach to development of species. What makes What I find most interesting is if you think about it, Arguably, it should keep going past the sentient sapient life form thing, and yet, by all accounts, it does not. Now, whether that's because the architect decided to not keep pushing the system, whether that's because of Amalthus's interactions with basically holding back the entirety of humanity for years and years and years, or maybe it's because of the entire idea of, well, for lack of a better way to put it, that we are actually at the pinnacle point, that sentient sapient life is... The cusp, or not the cusp, that's the wrong word, the break point. It's it, done, boom, gone. There's no further up from that point. Which is an interesting idea and one that science fiction doesn't really do all that often. I actually do like that, as weird as that may sound. Maybe it's just because it's so rare of a thing. Because so often science fiction, I mean, Chronicles X did this exact thing. So often science fiction portrays, you know, sentient sapient life as like the beginning, not the end of, of the development cycle. So I like the idea that it's more the end of the development cycle. But I digress. Moving on. And then we have this whole thing with uh, Logos and Numa. I actually wrote down the pronunciation guide sort to make sure I didn't screw it up, because that's not how I want to say Logos and Penuma. But anyways, I guess it would be Numa Havios, but whatever. Anyways, so we've got Logos and Numa. Who the hell was Antos? Like, they mentioned he was drafted into another universe. I'm pretty sure they mean he's a character from one, but I don't remember anyone specifically enough who would actually be him from one. And I never really caught into that. Anyways, so being you, so okay, the earlier example of the clouds and the information and data gathering, as absolutely weird as this is going to sound, serves as an excellent point of tangible development cycle. In other words, making sure that creatures have the literal brains and biology necessary in order to be able to function as sentient sapient beings, to develop into sentient sapient beings, as well as all the monsters and beasts and creatures that we have around it. All makes sense, but all on the tangible side of things. So his inclusion of the blades as the intangible side of this equation is actually kind of brilliant in its own right, because what he does by doing this is he ensures that these blades connect with people on an individual level, on a personal level, and monitor and keep track of things like well, all the intangible things, concepts, ideas, emotions, thoughts, perspectives, um, ideologies, phys uh, uh, psychological concepts, you know, all those things that aren't really tangibly necessary for existence. And thus the blades serve the other side of this, because as the blades gain more information, that cycles back through, and their cores develop, which leads into them developing eventually into titans, which then leads the titans to developing more blades, and the cycle continues. It's actually a brilliant life cycle process that's been constructed here in its own right. And, of course, the, the blades, that is to say anything, anything that's born of the crystals, does have a finite lifespine. They can be destroyed, of course, and the titans eventually do die of old age and slowly sink below the clouds. But it's implied that that's a natural thing, that they are eventually designed to, you know, once they sink below the clouds, to be disseminated into the, the rest of the cloud and then rebuilt into new creatures and starting the cycle over again. It's a very tight-knit system, and quite brilliant in its own right. Very appropriate for someone who had a huge amount of time and a huge amount of power to do it. Which brings me to the conduit. 
I got to be honest. The first time I well, I didn't see the conduit. Obviously, the first time I saw it was one of the core crystals. I'm like, that looks like a Zohar. It turns out I was basically right. Not that they are Zohars, but rather that they are based off of the conduit, which itself looks a whole lot like a Zohar, like an astonishingly large amount like a Zohar. And given how the Zohars worked over in the Saga series and how the conduit works in this franchise, connecting both one and two together. I don't think it's actually all that out of bound to say that this literally is a Zohar that is interacting here, one of the one of the Zohars that's doing this. I'm not saying it's the specific ones from that game, but that's serious because Saga has its own little thing going on. But it wouldn't surprise me if there was a loose connection between the two. But I bring up the conduit because the conduit's kind of necessary for all of this to happen. It's actually a little bit plot convenient if I'm being honest with myself. Without the conduit, Klaus could just... All he could do is stand up there and be like, Well, this sucks. <laughs> wow, yeah, man, this sucks. I'm the only one left on a planet, and there's a few survivors down in the ruins. That's all we got. So, um... I know we got a deck of cards... But instead he has the conduit so he can do all the things to craft the artificial life cycle that he did, which apparently was rather successful, given the prolific nature of sentient sapient beings within this setting. Now, <laughs> there's a lot of suicidal people in this game, too. It's actually funny. You notice that? There's a lot of people like, ah, I just want to die. Um, I suppose let's get to the themes, because, again, as weird as this may sound, I don't have much to say about the characters. I mean, it's not like they're bad. It's just all of the characters, to me, more represented reflections of the theme. To me, the themes, i got to say it plural because there's two, the themes of this game were really the emphasis of the story this time around, and a little bit the plot, because, again, the plot was actually fairly tightly constructed and ties in nicely with the first game. Klaus is probably the best place to start when it comes to the themes of the game, because Klaus... When uh, there's the whole saviorite attack, right? That originally started off all of the events of both games. We, we have no idea what the hell they were doing or what what they were in, intending to achieve. But what we do know is that that was just endemic of most of the problems that were happening globally back on the original Earth. And Klaus was someone who, well, to put this as bluntly as possible, was looking at the macroscopic scale. He looked at humanity nations, flags, ideologies, and all he saw was a mess. A giant, horrible circumstance of people just ruining everything. And it's easy to see that because, to be 100% blunt, if you looked at all of humanity right now, you could probably draw the same conclusions. If you just look at humanity as a whole, what you see is a mess. Now, that's the macroscopic view. That's the view of, of the long view. And that's a view that a lot of science fiction likes to establish in general. You know, the idea of, well, yeah, okay, you may do this, but what's going to happen to your empire 500 years from now? You know, foundation series, right? So it's understandable why Klaus, especially as a scientist, would think that way. Well, he wouldn't be thinking about now or individuals, but he would be thinking about the, the macroscopic perspective of what will happen once they take this area, once they take the conduit, once they manage to destroy this other area. How will, we, how will humanity survive? Should humanity survive? Klaus himself then, of course, you know, triggers the, the conduit, starts both games, and then is tremendously grief-stricken because all the damage he caused. So it's like, no, it's okay. I'm going to start a new life cycle. Let me go on for a second. And this new life cycle is going to fix it. We're going to do things right this time. We're going to do things correct. Nothing's going to be wrong. Why is everything going wrong? Because that's basically what happened. 
he developed a new cycle, a new system of developing sentient sapient beings, and then they developed basically along the same lines that humanity did. You could argue as to whether or not this is because all beings follow the same line, or because it's because they were following the same, uh, let's call it, methods of patterning that humanity had, since that's what they came from, was ideas and concepts from humanity, the core crystals originally being literally brain matter, and not physically, but, you know, the, designed to take in uh, central intelligences from the brains of those who survived. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. Point being, they followed the same path, the same grooves in the, in the track, if you will. So he looks at this like, well, this is a mess. Clearly I was wrong. If this is all there is, we should all die. You'll notice at all of these points in times, Klaus is always looking at things from the macroscopic view. He is always zoomed out as far as possible. Humanity's terrible! Oh god, humanity's dead! I gotta fix it! I gotta fix it! I gotta fix it! Oh, humanity's terrible! And every time he hasn't zoomed in his camera. Now, this is a very common and indeed cliched thing to happen in video games as well as in several animes, I am told, uh, but in movies and books as well. The idea that one person goes in and says, you don't understand, people are good, and then gives them the, you know, the, the speech, and then, you know, the Kirk speech, and then they turn around like, okay, you're right. But I think it works in this case. It really does, in my opinion, for me, because, because Klaus has never really interacted with a person I mean, yeah, he interacted with, oh god, I can't think of her name, the woman who's actually in Xenosaga, uh, or, excuse me, uh, Xenoblade 1. But anyways, he interacted with her, but other than that, it's always been the macroscopic view. He's never seen individuals. This is a natural product of human psychology, actually. It is a lot easier to press a button that launches some missiles that wipes out a chunk of the map than it is to walk up to a human being that's right in front of you and strangle them to death. I know that's a horrible and coarse analogy, but it gets across my point. Klaus, this whole time, has been seeing numbers and data and maps and just the zoomed-out view. Seeing an individual and seeing the data from individuals, most specifically from his agesses, um, Pyra and Mithra, helps to show him the individual perspective, the microscopic perspective, which is the flip side of the view. And that, in my opinion, is the first predominant theme of this game, the microscopic versus the macroscopic. Because the two viewpoints, being honest, don't really congruent. There's no real way to keep in mind the long picture and the short picture. It's kind of a paradox of its own right. You can't care about a person and a nation equally, right? It doesn't work that way. So Klaus is introduced to the very idea that, as funny as it may sound, he was wrong. That there is the possibility of actual good, not on the macroscopic scale, but on the microscopic scale. And that maybe he should just allow good to be, acknowledging that bad is which is another sub-theme of the whole thing. You know, to quote Rex here, forgiveness is not easy, but that's the world we live in. And that is ultimately Rex in a nutshell, which I'm going to segue into talking about Rex here, because Rex is probably one of the more interesting protagonists I've seen in this kind of a work. In many ways, he is a typical JRPG protagonist. <laughs> I'm not even going to get into the... Uh, interactions between him and Pyra. Let's, let's just leave that at the door. What I do want to talk about is how he is ultimately, in his own way, very flawed, because he is microscopic viewpoint, again, to an extreme. In fact, several things he pursues and does really would not have worked out if not for the fact that other people were helping him by thinking more long-term. He is someone who really only cares about the individual perspective, the people, the actual named individual people that he connects with, whether they are blades or people or whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, 
and he basically clings to the individualist perspective uh, to the point of, like I said, to the point of extremism. And it kind of gets across as him being idealistic, but again, he's not. He's not actually an idealist. He is actually quite a bit of a realist because he recognizes that, and guess what? Life kind of sucks. It is just his opinion that even though life sucks, that doesn't mean you should allow it to continue to be bad, which leads into the second theme of this work, the idea of stagnation versus change. Now, this is a more obvious theme and far more predominant in a lot of the uh, the more surface-level Storytelling, Amalthus himself being the most obvious example. I refuse to change. Why should I change? I mean, he even says that flat out in the game. Little on the nose. But nevertheless, it does form the second layer of the themes. The idea that Klaus, to, to tie this back into him, insisted that I'm going to do it better this time, and instead the exact same thing happened. So why bother even trying? Kind of gets into the same mentality of why bother moving forward when everything is just going to be awful anyways. This is then tying into Rex, who is very big in favor of the idea of change. So his, he is the individualist who wants very much to change, whereas Klaus was very much the uh, group scale who wanted to change. This, of course, ties in, uh, contrasts Amalthus, who was the individual who wanted to stay stagnant. And there's another individual in this, in this quadrant we'll talk about in a second. Um, I think uh, Amalthus himself is probably best explained as the equivalent of this universe is Zanza. In almost every way, he ends up per uh, pertaining to the characters and the themes in the same way. He is the individual who says, No! I am right, I am... And he, he retains his absolute certainty almost to the entirety of the game, even up to and when he is already actively dying. Although I do have to admit, the game goes a little bit too far out of its way, in my opinion, with slamming you with, with flashbacks at several moments. And basically everything surrounding the Amalthus final fight was like that. It's like, oh my god, he's, he's got this huge form and all this power he's absorbed from all these crystals. And then here's a flashback. <laughs> Damn it, Gabe, come on. Getting back to the point. Amalthus himself, then, in his refusal to change... Well... The way he expresses it is different than everyone else expresses it. But the way he expresses it is basically a subset of fear. Because he presents change as the unknown, which may or may not be better and may or may not be worse. And several other characters acknowledge this concept, but he himself says, Nope! Nope. Locked in. This is, you know, everyone is always horrible. Everything is always horrible. So I'm just going to go ahead and uh, insist that we kind of etch-a-sketch the board here. Is that cool with everyone? Cool. But what's interesting is that despite his intention to wipe out humanity, Amalthus never lost the individual perspective. He ultimately only really cared about a few specific individuals at the microscopic level, despite his insistence on stagnation. Now, I point that out because the contrast in the character I hinted at earlier is Malice, who uh, I swear sometimes the actors say Malice instead of Malos. And so it kind of blurs. So if I do that too, it's, it's not on purpose, I swear. But Malos himself then serves as the final counterpoint to all these earlier arguments. Because Malos is the macroscopic stagnation. He is the one who sees the large-scale picture and insists that everything not only can't change, but shouldn't change. That there is no possibility in even bothering to try. He says it himself, again, somewhat obviously, in the, just before the actual final battle, where he mentions that, yes, I am a monster too. I actually kind of liked that scene, i, I got to be honest, because it gets across the idea that unlike Amalthus, Malos had no delusions about this. 
Rather, he saw in uh, all of humanity, you know, I keep saying that word, all of sentient and sapient life as a mess because he had the macroscopic perspective and he insisted that there was no possible way it could ever change, just like his original driver did, Amalthus. He, in other words, yes, I am also part of the problem is basically what I'm trying to say. I love that he actually acknowledged that and presented that as part of his argument. The mere fact that you were here fighting me proves me right is what it feels like he was trying to say. And of course, his, his semi-final lines were, if you're actually going to try and change the world, you got to try a little harder than that, helps to indicate the idea that he believes the force of momentum, cultural momentum, environmental momentum needed to actually change things is so monumental that the, he doesn't think the party really has it in them, hence him pushing them as hard as he can. Basically, a sort of, I'm going to die if I... One way or another, I'm going to be correct, because I'm either going to die and therefore have pushed you in order to, to affect change sufficiently, or I am going to succeed and wipe out all life. One of these two things is happening. And either way, I'm going to try my damnedest, because if you can't kill me with me going full tilt, then you can't change the world. Again, a very cliched thing, but very well presented to the point where I was willing to accept that. As I've said many times, cliches are not necessarily bad. It depends on how you present them and execute them, which, of course... Um, Leads me to uh, my final point here. See, Malos... How do I phrase this? If you think everything is awful, and you think it can't change, what kind of life do you think you would lead? I mean, there's several characters in this that present that uh, mindset and perspective. Malos himself being the most obvious one. You can kind of see how... It cracks him, just crushes him under the weight of that kind of thought and that mentality. And even in the face of, of individuals telling him otherwise, he insists, no matter what you, the individual, say, it doesn't matter, because they, the group, is going to be different. You may be good, but they, we, are not. And that, I feel, is pretty much the overall theme of this game. And again, it does, a, it does a smart thing by not really portraying anything as particularly more right. Instead, it basically posits the idea that an individual should not decide for the macro. Klaus should not have the power to change everything any more than Amalthus should, any more than Malos should. The one thing that is perceived as right in the end is that everything changes from the individual perspective. I don't actually have much else to share, really. I found uh, Pyra and Mithra to be a fascinating concept, by the way. Two, two separate intellects basically inhabiting, inhabiting the same body, but completely distinct from each other. Like, at no, time, at no point in time did I see anything that indicated that Mithra, for example, see, saw Pyra as just a side of her, or Pyra had resentment towards Mithra. No, they were basically, they basically called each other sisters, and they just present a different side of... I, I wouldn't say the same personality, but even that's not quite accurate. It's more like they are separate personalities. It does make one wonder, exactly, but given the nature of Blades and how they work, it would actually be relatively easy, given the circumstance, to construct a second body, which, by all accounts, is exactly what happens in the ending. We actually have two bodies. That's going to be interesting. I was told by many sources that this story was, was intended to be simple at its core. A boy meets a girl. And... In my opinion, that is probably the simplest way to explain 
everything about the two themes I just discussed with you. That a boy meets a girl is a simple, down-to-earth, individual, change story. And I think that's just kind of... I like that. I don't know how better to put that. I like that. I like the simple eloquence of that. Now, let's really hope they make a Xenoblade Chronicles X, too. <clears throat> Anyways, I have no idea what they're working on next. I know they have the expansion. I should mention really quick, I did not play the expansion for this. Uh, I didn't have time. And uh, the end. <laughs> I mean, this was already an enormously long game, and hitting Chronicles X and Chronicles 2 back-to-back has just absolutely been destroying me. So I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. I'll see you guys next time.